0: It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Phyllis Diller episode of the Muppet Show. Hey, everyone! Welcome back. It's so good
1: to be here. This is David Levy, and today with me are
2: Christy Bauer,
1: Adam Grossworth,
3: and Michael Richardson.
1: We are here this week to talk about the Phyllis Diller episode of the Muppet Show. It is season one, episode eighteen. It was taped October 11th through 14th, 1976, and it aired in New York on February 14th, 1977. Hey, that's my negative one birthday. All right. Ooh. Exciting. Uh, it was followed, uh, at least in New York, by on CBS by Be My Valentine, Charlie Brown, and a special episode of Busting Loose. And then, of course, there was Maud. <laughs> What's Busting Loose?
3: It's what happens to Hilda later in this episode.
1: <laughs> hey, uh, Busting Loose was an Adam Arkin sitcom uh, about a young man in his 20s who is busting loose from his parents. So, yeah, the CBS primetime lineup has changed a little bit since we last looked it up. Um, but then Maude was still on at nine. And I don't think that she did a Valentine's Day episode.
3: And somebody was still white swapping.
1: <laughs> David, call, <laughs> both of you. <laughs>
2: To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce
0: to you. Phyllis Diller was an actor, writer, musician, and above all, a comedian who blazed a trail for women in comedy, opening doors for the likes of Joan Rivers, Rosie O'Donnell, Ellen DeGeneres, and Midge Maisel. Uh, I'm going to start by quoting from her New York Times obituary. Ms. Diller, who became famous for telling jokes that mocked her odd looks, her aversion to housekeeping, and a husband she called Fang was far from the first woman to do stand-up comedy, but she was one of the most influential. There were precious few women before her, if any, who could dispense one-liners with such machine-gun precision or overpower an audience with such an outrageous personality. Born in Lima, Ohio in 1917 to older, undemonstrative, emotionally withholding parents, Diller studied piano for three years at the Sherwood Music Conservatory of Columbia College, Chicago, but decided against a music career and transferred to Bluffton College. She did retain her musical abilities, as sort of hinted at in this episode. In fact, throughout the 70s, she appeared as a piano soloist with symphony orchestras across the country under the stage name Dame Ilya Dilya. Much like Rolf's performance of Fur Elise last week, she mixed in humor, but her piano playing was no joke. She met Sherwood Diller at Bluffton College, and they married in 1939 when she was 22 years old. She left school without graduating and spent her 20s as a housewife taking care of their five children. In her 30s, she began to seek out work as an entertainer, first in radio and then in local television. She made her stand-up debut at a basement club in San Francisco called The Purple Onion, a two-week booking that was so popular it lasted a year and a half. She had the support of her husband, perhaps in part because her career soon was more successful and more financially beneficial than his. She reached a national audience as a contestant on You Bet Your Life, host Groucho Marx, asked her to do a bit of her stand-up act, and it led to more bookings on The Tonight Show, The Jack Parr Show, and eventually Ed Sullivan. And in fact, we have her appearance on Your Bet Your Life available in our show notes. From there, she went on to record comedy albums, perform in bigger venues, and eventually take on the movies and television. Bob Hope, who was her comedy hero, became a mentor, and they did a number of movies together, and he took her on a USO tour to Vietnam. In 1965, when she was a pretty well-established comedian at that point, she divorced Sherwood Diller. That same year, she married Ward Donovan, an actor. They would divorce 10 years later. She never remarried after that, but she did have uh, like a life companion named Robert Hastings, who was a lawyer from the mid-'80s until he died in 1996. In 1966, she published her first book, a bestseller called Phyllis Diller's Housekeeping Hints, which was a comedy book, sort of uh, you know a twist on Hints from Heloise. She wrote several more books into the early 80s, and in 2006, she put out a memoir called Like a Lampshade in a Whorehouse, My Life in Comedy, which she wrote with Richard Buskin. In 69, she took over the starring role in Hello, Dolly! on Broadway, following Muppet Show guest star Pearl Bailey and preceding Muppet Show guest star Ethel Merman. In the early 70s, she had the first of what would become many cosmetic surgeries. She was very public about the work she had done, which was very taboo then, and I think probably is still taboo now. The industry embraced her as a spokesperson for helping to reduce shame around such procedures. Like Sandy Duncan, she appeared as herself in an episode of The New Scooby-Doo Mysteries. And like Florence Henderson, she was a frequent guest on Hollywood Squares. And like many celebrities of the era, she was a frequent
1: guest on variety shows, game shows, and sitcoms. And she also had a lot of voiceover credits. There was a strange, to me, uh, phrasing in The Muppet Morsels, my favorite thing to copy edit um phyllis provided voices for the wild thornberries hey arnold and the classic stop-motion masterpiece the mad monster party i i had never ever heard of the mad monster party which i said this in our slack and david found this very strange found a clip of it for me i have never seen it in my life before today it, it looks quite delightful it's from the 60s it's by the same people who did um rudolph Redner's reindeer but i just particularly from the perspective of 2005 when the DVDs came out, it seems like the Wild Thornberries and Hey Arnold, while not classic masterpieces, would be more relevant to the DVD-buying audience than the Mad Monster Party, which perhaps was not the classic masterpiece that the Muppet Mortals <laughs> think it is.
0: Well, Mad Monster Party had just come out on DVD a couple years before this, and so was having sort of a moment. So I think that's probably the folks who write trivia for dvd bonus contents are also probably the same folks who are very excited about a maybe obscure 60s pop culture kids show coming out on
1: dvd for the first. solid point i've gotten very deep into some of the grammatical errors in the muppet morsels and some of their editorial choices this was one but yeah she did a ton of voice work
0: She retired in 2002, and her final stand-up engagement was captured by documentarian Greg Barson for his film Good Night, We Love You, The Life and Legend of Phyllis Diller, which unfortunately is not available streaming but is still available as a DVD. And she continued to make occasional television appearances until her death at age 95 in 2012.
1: It's been a while, I think, since we've had like a really solid 70s monoculture guest. Why did I know who Phyllis Diller was when I was five? I don't know, but I definitely did i mean scooby-doo is probably a really good reason why actually but yeah she was just everywhere i don't think i've ever seen her stand up i feel like i knew her from hollywood squares yeah hollywood squares would have been a little bit later for me but but yeah for sure uh, and i definitely saw that scooby-doo episode and she was playing herself so like that laugh is which we'll hear later in a clip is like a thing a great great thing michael what did you think of this week's episode? <laughs>
3: You know what? I enjoyed this episode. Um, Not exactly in spite of the Hilda backstage story, but definitely not because of the backstage story. Um, Hilda herself is great, as always. She makes lots of the squishy faces that I love and never change Hilda, except... Uh, this whole plot is about her wanting to change. We will get to that. And we also get to some lectures from her and from Carmen about how it's wonderful that a woman wants to look her best and remain young for as long as she can. So uh, happy 1976, everybody. But I think that a, a common thread in all of the really standout episodes for me, have a guest star who not just loves being around the Muppets, because lots of these guest stars do, but really not only fits in with them, but really elevates their whole game. And Phyllis Dillard does that. She's she's down to clown and trade jokes and make a fool of herself. And she makes the, the running gag so much more joyful than it would have been without her. And even though her, her style of zany comedy isn't exactly Muppet-like, she is very Muppety and it complements the Muppets in a really satisfying way. I really dug this episode.
0: David, how about you? Yeah, me too. You know, it's funny. Her comedy isn't exactly Muppety, but her fashion sense is very Muppety and her physicality is very Muppety. And so I think that's why she fits in so well. The funny thing to me about this episode is, you know, I'm always a little bit more weighted towards the music of the show and therefore musical guests. And in this one, the music was my absolute least favorite part of the episode, but everything outside of that was so good. It kind of soften the blow of my disappointment in the songs. So uh, I think this is a really fun, solid episode. Christy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I would like three more Phyllis Diller episodes, please. Like seriously, this is the first time that where I felt a pure symbiotic relationship between the guest star and the Muppets because I agree that Phyllis Diller's energy isn't Muppety, but also she isn't deluding herself or stooping to the level of the Muppets, which is like, I, I God, I keep ragging on the Peter Yustanov episode, but that it definitely felt like he was like, you know, deigning to be among the Muppets. And it's like, no, Mil- Phyllis Diller just showed up and met them where they live and was wholly and utterly herself. And there's something like effortless about that and really delightful. And she's such a treat that I I do think that the other parts of the episode that don't feature her kind of suffer by comparison and gosh, the the Hilda thing is such a disappointment, especially because I I just, I love Hilda so much. Like I'm just going to be so sad to see her go like possibly even more than our friends from Cleveland, like (laughs) ah, Hilda, but, and also, yeah, the, the, the music was the worst part of this episode. No question. So yeah, it it was a strange experience, but a, a delightful experience, generally speaking.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're out of our rut for sure. I mean, I, I, I can't promise that we don't go back to it, though. I'm pretty confident we won't go back to it next week. You know, and I, I agree and we will get into it with, I don't care for the substance of the backstage plot. Um, Structurally, we, we are called Muppeturgy, so I'm going <laughs> to get a little bit dramaturgically get into it. It's the same thing I said last week, right? It's It's fast. It builds, right? Those scenes are not too repetitive. It's a great short Vets Hospital. And most importantly, it it's Phyllis Diller. She has such great chemistry with Rolf and Fozzie. The talk spot is different because it's Fozzie, not Kermit. It's just like it felt really fresh and fun. And uh and I think I liked a couple things more than you guys did in specifics too. I I just had a lot of fun with this. <laughs>
2: So speaking of the the music that some of us did not enjoy.
1: Uh, <laughs> Let me be clear. I liked some things more than you guys did. <laughs> this is not one of those things. Yes. Good clarification. <laughs> yes. Just wanna right up front.
2: We begin with something that I personally find indefensible. Dance, do
1: they do? Glory how I'm telling you. They don't need no band. They keep time by clapping their hands. Just as happy as a cow chewing on a cud when the people beat their feet on the Mississippi mud.
2: okay so this is a number by some of the members of the Gogolala jubilee jug band who have acquired feet <laughs>
1: the, their own their own feet
0: Where, are you sure they're just wearing them in a, like on a necklace around their <laughs> you
1: know the way oh. christy phrased it
3: <clears throat> i mean they must have acquired them somewhere
2: Oh boy. Um so yeah. So bare
0: is- feet. I think that's that's key here, right? Oh. Like it's not just that they have feet, it's that they're bare feet. Which yes. not not bear like Fuzzy bear. Human bear like- feet with no shoes on them. Right.
2: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> but a lot of mud.
2: So everything about this is, is unfortunate. This is a song called "Mississippi Mud" uh, that was written in 1927 by a guy named Harry Barris for uh, the singing group that he was in called Paul Whiteman's Rhythm Boys, which was a trio uh, that was him, Al Rinker, and an uh, up-and-comer named Bing Crosby. And uh, yeah, promising young man. Yeah, he made something of himself eventually. <laughs> But uh at this particular point it uh, was a song that if you thought could this song be worse? Yes. Yes, it could be. Uh because the original version of this song is racist. <laughs> so uh yeah, yeah. Um Oh good. The the word people does not appear in the original song and I I will leave oh, it Oh
1: no.
0: That. Oh.
2: Uh Yep.
0: We will not be including that on our uh, Spotify playlist. Absolutely no, no. not.
2: this is this is the first time that I uh, absolutely do not recommend uh, looking up the original. Um, but uh, I I would like to uh, share a few fun facts about Harry Barris. Uh, he w- would uh, go on to appear in a bunch of movies, mostly Bing Crosby movies I guess. Because he was his buddy. But I, f- I found a really funny quote on Wikipedia about one of them. Uh, An unusual change of pace for Barris was his comedy role in The Fleet's Inn from 1942 as a runty sailor named Pee Wee who perpetrates malapropisms in a surprisingly deep voice. Anyway, uh, that's a
3: very specific yay. stick. Yeah. Toxic yeah. masculinity.
2: So, yeah, so this is definitely a- apart from the. Unfortunate origins of the song. Uh, this is the first time that I've found a performance by the jug band musically indefensible as well.
3: Break it down for us, Ugh. please. Tell us more.
2: Well, first of all, they're flat as fuck. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, like they they barely hit pitches, and when they do, it's bad news. Oh. And and that's why they're also stomping in the mud in a way that like squicks me out in the same way that. And margaret rolling around in the baked beans and the Who's
4: Talking oh. movie does. <laughs>
2: like, it's just... Oh, I recoil in horror, just the thought of it. Um, Yeah, I don't have anything nice to say about it. Does anyone?
1: <sighs> nah. No. Do, oh, okay, I do. It's going to take me a little bit to get there. Um, <laughs> this is not anything about it first. I, there's a lot of reasons why I don't have children. One of them is that... Uh, like, this kind of thing just squeaks me out, right? Like, just this kind of mess. I don't like it. And having having once been a stage manager, I can tell you that a thing you never, ever want to see on stage is mud. Oh, boy. Or blood, or glitter, or sand. Like, it will be there forever. Ten other shows can happen in that theater, and somebody will be like, hey, what's this? Oh, that's mud from ten shows ago, or sand, or whatever. And it went, actually, a bit that I really liked is when they're coming off stage. And weirdly, five of them come off stage when only mm-hmm. three of them were on stage. And I really want to know what that was about. But when they're coming off stage, Scooter actually like yells at them for not wiping their feet, which horrified me, but I also like that it was included. But i just like, I I understand that we're watching a puppet show, but I was like thinking through like the logistics of like what why should there why wasn't there a tarp right there? Like they, they need to immediately come off stage and clean their feet before anything else happens. Like I once did a show that had a lot of blood in it and like an actor had to come off stage and step on a tarp and strip in the wings before he went anywhere because like, otherwise the, the whole theater would be ruined anyway. That's what was going through my head while I was watching this number. But then the second time I watched it, I noticed that the the mud didn't splash at all because in fact it is not real mud. And then I was dying to know what it was. Because I, was it hoping,
3: actually, it, I was hoping that you would know because I, I was hoping that it wasn't mud. First of all, and it is. Of all, I mean, it's yeah. not.
1: But it looks like there's. They do this close up. They. I mean, it's weird. But they they pan across their feet. Like they do a close up of their feet stomping in the mud, and it looks really real. It's shiny. It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's something like brownie batter. But I don't. I think that would splash too. Like I think it's just like some sort of acrylic. So it's reflective.
3: Just something that's sprayed with something really glossy.
1: Yeah. And like there's, you know, and there's paint on the puppets. I don't know. It's like as a bit of like Muppet stagecraft, I find it actually incredible because it's quick set out because it looks so real that we're all made uncomfortable by it. And it's actually totally fake. I don't ever want to see this again. There's a couple gifts in our show notes if you would like to. (laughs) Um, But uh, so that's my, my one positive is like, good job Muppet crew at Making this look real enough that all of us hated it.
3: <laughs> I'm so relieved for those puppets that they weren't stomping in mud.
2: Yeah, the close up on, on the feet, it's like because like you can tell that the feet are made of some kind of like rubbery foam. It looks like foam that has gotten heavy from being soaked in something. Like the longer I looked at it, the grosser it got. So yeah. Yeah, well,
1: and it yeah. needs the weight to do the the step thing, I think, too. It's Yeah, it's weird. Everything about it is weird.
3: Yeah, I but was good assuming... good the
1: mud. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I was assuming that they had just carved the feet out of foam and then sprayed them with a lot of whatever color the rest of the mud was.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: One kind of neat bit of trivia is that this song was featured in the 1930 film King of Jazz, which was uh, a musical review celebrating Paul Whiteman, who was the band leader, which is also the film where the song Happy Feet comes from, which uh, we'll see in a later... Episode and I think is a pretty classic Muppet Show bit. So that's neat.
2: So, uh, on a cleaner note, <laughs> we, we have a, a pretty delightful performance by The Electric Mayhem.
4: Lazy bones sleeping in the shade. I expect to get your corn meal made. Never get your cornmeal made when you're in an
2: Yeah, so this is a really straightforward, not jokey at all, uh, performance by The Electric Mayhem. Uh, and it's a, a welcome change of pace, I think. Uh, we don't have to think about anybody's feet, which is great.
0: (laughs) You know, it's so funny to me that this band that we think of as being like a psychedelic rock band also is like a very legit jazz combo and does almost an equal number of jazz songs as they do rock songs. And I'm trying to think if there were any equivalent bands like that in the 70s that were comfortable in both worlds. Like a lot of psychedelic acts have gone on like as they aged to also do this kind of music but I think the electric may have really trailblazers in that.
2: I agree. Not to mention uh, they do a lot of like not picture and picture, but split screen stuff in this, that feels like pioneering music video technique.
3: It's Although cool. Seeing it's it really now,
2: cool.
3: <laughs> it is really cool. And then seeing it now, it looks like a cross between watching people on a zoom call And one of those uh, visual thinking sketches where a Jim Henson hippie character shows a square character how to visualize their thoughts with on-screen animation. All of those things are happening at once in this number, which is cool, but it also doesn't look like they're in the same room if you've been on Zoom calls for a year and a half.
2: This is true. So yeah, so this is a song called Lazy Bones uh, from 1933. Uh, The lyrics are by Johnny Mercer, who we've talked about before, and the music's by Hoagie Carmichael, who uh, we have not talked about before. And uh, Hoagy Carmichael uh, is best known for writing the music uh, for several uh, major jazz standards uh, and just American standards in general, um, including Stardust, uh, Georgia On My Mind, uh, The Nearness of You, and Heart and Soul. And I was uh, delighted to learn that Hoagy is short for his given name, which is Hoagland. He is not a man named after a sandwich. Oh,
3: that's really disappointing.
2: He also, like many of the songwriters that we've talked about so far, uh, was a, a winner of the uh, Academy Award for Best Original Song for a song called In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening uh, that had lyrics by Johnny Mercer uh, in 1951.
0: Johnny Mercer, in addition to being a, a lyricist, also was a recording artist. And he was still active as a recording artist in the 70s. And he released, I'm not sure if it was one long album or a couple of albums that got combined in the CD era where he did all of his, well, not all of his, but many of his old standards sort of rethought with kind of seventies pop funky orchestrations. Um, they're delightful. I'm going to find one that relates to up a show and drop it in the show notes for this. Cause uh, it's, it's sort of the flip side of the electric mayhem doing Johnny Mercer's Johnny Mercer doing the electric yeah,
2: and then we go to a very strange place indeed.
1: I feel like we should set this clip up for anybody who might be listening without watching. Uh, it's there's three creatures, and the first one you'll hear essentially is is bullying anyone who doesn't sing what he is singing, and then the third creature will will not allow himself to be bullied.
4: Waka, Wookie, Hicky Hookie.
2: Walk Waka waka, waka waka, waka
4: waka, waka hug waka,
2: My only sunshine. Yep. The first part of it uh, is a song called Hugga Wugga that has music by Frank Sinatra's favorite, uh, Joe Raposo, and lyrics such as they are (laughs) by Jim Henson. (laughs) And this sketch was originally created for a stage show for Nancy Sinatra called Moving with Nancy Nice and Easy. In 1971, and they apparently filmed it, but it never got finished and, you know, was never released in any way. And, and even Nancy Sinatra wants it released, I, I read, uh, if, if they can find it and finish it, cause, because she said the, the Muppet stuff is, is really great. But yeah, it's it's weird. It sort of feels like part Coosbane and part Menomina just kind of like <sighs> smushed together. It's very, very bizarre.
0: To me, it feels like the kind of sketch that is as much about showing off like, hey, we can do this cool thing with puppets that you probably aren't expecting a puppet to be able to do, as it is about entertaining. <laughs> I, I, I I, am not a, a huge Hugga fan. Yeah, I'm
3: not I love either. it. I'm into it, and I, I'm into the showing off with puppets, but also this kind of Dynamic that happens in this sketch and in previous iterations of this sketch that they've done on talk shows in the sixties and seventies, where the dynamic there is that there is a character who is refusing to be bullied and this kind of peace-loving, whether they're singing "You Are My Sunshine" or something else, but they still, this is this tiny peaceful character who ends up exploding the bully. <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot to bully Muppets,
1: right? Yeah, like the the, the cutest possible. <laughs> Like annoyingly cute thing, then explodes being in some way, right? Um, I forgot where this was going. Right, this started, and this was in the Muppet Show book, which we talked about a couple times. So you would think I'd remember it, but I, I really didn't. And when when You Are My Sunshine appeared, I, I fully laughed out loud. <laughs> like it's so cute, and and I just re- it, I don't know, it really got me, and then it continued to get me. Like all the the further escalations of the violence there's also um we'll put in the show notes the earlier versions of this i find the earlier versions of these puppets insanely creepy and unsettling um <laughs> which isn't necessarily a bad thing given what the sketch is but this particularly the main one the hugga Wugga, it walks such a fine line between menacing and cute it's it's kind of like a big dog but like then it it you know it can shoot you like i don't know i i there's something about its design that I was really taken by in the way its eyes move and its eyebrows and then all, I don't know everything about it. I'm I really am deeply in love with.
0: I feel like they learned some things from Sesame street in between the earlier version of the sketch and this version that helped them sh- like uh, shift these puppets from being horrific monsters to being cool monsters or, you know, friend monsters. Yeah.
1: Like he's still very threatening and, but also you kind of, you want to look at him.
2: I thought the main Hugga looked like a, like a vegetable that had gone off in the refrigerator. <laughs> it's got kind of like, like a leafy stalky thing coming out of its head. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I also like, again, just like the, the theatricality of it. I was very con- concerned for the performers and all the dry ice, <laughs> like knowing that dry ice goes down. I was like, can they see anything under there? But yeah, oh, clearly they could because they did a good job
2: yeah they did great a couple of quick fun facts about you are my sunshine so the authorship of you are my sunshine is actually kind of disputed i and i i wasn't able to fully follow that trail to its end but it it looks like people don't entirely agree on its origins but it was made famous by a country artist named jimmy davis in, in 1939 who ended up being the governor of louisiana Uh, from 1944 to 1948, and then from 1960 to 1964. And because of that, it later was declared one of the state songs of Louisiana. And uh, relating back to uh, Mississippi Mud, if we we must, uh, the version (laughs) of the song that charted was by Bing Crosby. Um, Full circle. On on the pop chart, uh, a Ray Charles version reached number one on the R&B chart.
0: And you know, Ray Charles also recorded Mississippi mud
2: really yeah
0: 1960 wow.
1: but did he record Hugga Wugga <laughs> <laughs> <I
2: didn't forget. laughs>
1: just before we move on from Hugga the um the old version is also worth watching because while well, of course Muppet show has a laugh track um at least one of the the clips that David found is a live audience um on a talk show and they are going crazy for this. <laughs> like I, I like this a lot. Not like they were liking it. <laughs> I think I would like a better live also. Like yeah. probably. Yeah. It's just it's I'm really sure interesting it's to hear cool. it's really interesting to hear a live audience respond to this. Because also they'd probably never seen anything like it.
3: Yeah, they'd never seen anything like it. And also they were seeing it in person in color, whereas we are seeing it in black and white. Like the Muppet Show right. has an advantage here. There's right. color, there are more sophisticated puppets. And also there is Frank Oz performing Hugga Wugga, which, I mean, Jim Henson was a brilliant puppeteer, and then Frank Oz was also the secret weapon of the show. So if he can bring even more subtlety to what Hugga Wugga is going through as he's being sabotaged by this tiny peaceful monster, it's that much funnier.
2: All right. Uh, so if you were hoping for a Phyllis Diller contribution to the musical numbers, guess what? You're in luck. Why yes, that sonorous saxophone solo... Uh, is none other than Phyllis Diller. <laughs> and, uh, I, I find this delightful. Uh, it, it, I guess it depends on how entertained you are by bad saxophone playing, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is, uh, Phyllis Diller and the, the Muppet Show Orchestra. Uh, at, at one point, Zoot comes in to, uh, show her how it's done, but she will not be deterred. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really delightful. This is a, a Scott Joplin piece called The Entertainer. And uh, this is our, our second Scott Joplin piece after Solace in the um, Juliet Prowse episode. And as we talked about a little bit in that episode, this was definitely a 70s monoculture thing because the music of Scott Joplin and The Entertainer specifically were having a bit of a resurgence in the 70s thanks to the movie The Sting. There was an, a, a version of The Entertainer from the soundtrack of that movie that Marvin Hamlish had uh, arranged that reached number three on the the hot 100 and also spent uh, a week at number one on the easy listening chart in 1974. So yeah. So uh, Scott Joplin was having a moment
0: between last week's Fur release and this week's the entertainer. It's like being stuck in a perpetual children's piano recital. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, and this really has a high school orchestra feel to it with the yes. tax playing. I love this arrangement though. Like I was sort of like when it started I was like the entertainer okay whatever and then the second animal started playing those drums. I was sold.
2: Yeah, it's funky.
0: Oh. So something I learned is that Jack Parnell, who is the Muppet Show music director, was himself a drummer. And so that might be part of the reason why mm-hmm. some of these arrangements are a little drum forward or have like cooler drums than they might otherwise call for. Huh. And something even cooler, his son was the drummer for Spinal Tap.
3: It is some neat trivia. I'm glad This to is know probably
0: it. when I should also say that while I was learning about Jacques Parnell, I learned that he was had also been Bruce Forsyth's musical director at Sunday Night at the Palladium. We talked a lot about how did these guest stars get connected to The Muppet Show? Well, there you go.
1: The candelabra on Ralph's piano is much more secure this week. And I was very happy to see it.
3: Are we sure it's real fire?
1: Pretty sure it's real fire. It, last week, it was definitely real fire. Sure looks like real fire.
3: Yeah, it's just, that's a risk.
1: It was the 70s
0: in London. Seeing the Muppet Show Orchestra on stage as opposed to just the electric mayhem feels a little different. I don't know that we've seen them out of the orchestra pit yet. I don't believe we have. So it was nice to see our boy Nigel up there conducting. I don't know if we've talked about Nigel much on the podcast yet because his real moment in the spotlight was in the pilot for the Muppet show called Muppet show sex and violence, which we have not yet done an episode about. Oh, we did talk about him because he is in that number sex and violence with Zoot. Yes. Mm -hmm. But it was also nice to see, uh, the Muppet trumpet player get a a teeny moment of, of, feature when she got to play, you know, on screen, uh, in part because she's, you know, again, one of the few recurring female Muppets, So beloved that they didn't even give her name. She's literally called Trumpet Girl. If you look it up in Muppet Wiki, Mm -hmm. Rashida Jones named her Dolores when uh, she was in the Muppets in 2011. Because after the Muppet Show, I think that's the next appearance of Trumpet Girl. But uh, I just want to give her her due. She is part of the Muppet Show band for four years and then unceremoniously replaced by Lip's. The electric mayhem trumpet player who will eventually join the band, although she does stay in the band as a trombone player and eventually a clarinet player. Anyway, that's uh
1: that's Trumpet Girl. We salute you. I also love the little purple tuxedos.
0: Yeah. Always. I, I really like this sketch. It for me also helped click into place. There's something about the way that Phyllis Diller is, just her whole her whole being and the way that she really, the way that she acts and reacts with her whole body language that helped kind of put B. Arthur into context for me.
3: (laughs) I agree, but also explain.
1: Yes. Say more.
0: Well, uh, first of all, they're both sort of statuesque women in comedy who were not praised for their great beauty, but who they were known for being unafraid and being forceful in a way that uh, women, on stage and screen often we're not given the opportunity to be. So, uh, so there's that, but also they do so much with just a look or a glance, a tilt of the eyebrow, a tilt of the head, a shift in posture to, to communicate annoyance, displeasure uh, hilariously. And there's just, I don't know, there's just something about, about seeing Phyllis Diller do this that I was like, Oh, the things that I love about B Arthur are also present here.
3: I mean, there is some resemblance there, and maybe it's just the shape of the face and the eyebrows. There, there is something reminiscent about the B. Arthur look in Phyllis Diller. Um, but I, I agree with everything you said about the the physical comedy and the the nuances of her face. She does this thing where she's playing the wrong note, and then she kind of gives, gives herself a little punch to the head, and then gets the right note. It's it's so much fun to watch and. You won't get this if you listen to her stand-up albums, but she's there being a physical comedian in such a compelling way.
1: There's such I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves too, but like the the in the scene with Fozzie, like there's so much joy in that as well, right? Like, I mean you were talking about the way she expresses displeasure, which is totally true. Um, and this B. Arthur has this as well. Like, her laugh is amazing. <laughs> and when she and Fozzie are like riffing together it is it is so good and so much fun to watch, and and you know you'll you'll hear it in the audio, and you can also if you didn't watch the episode, you can you can go look at the gifts on our show notes, um, or just go watch the episode on Disney Plus. It's it's really great to just you know watch her work.
0: I also liked getting to see Zoot come out and do sort of the saxophone challenge duet with her, which made two things about Zoot's saxophone playing really obvious to me. One is that the sax that he plays is not real. Which what? I know, I know. But <laughs> How dare you? But somehow, when he's not in the context of real musicians, when it's just playing with electric mayhem in the same way that Animal plays real drums, I, I sort of took it for granted that Zoot's saxophone was an actual saxophone, but it's not, uh, which, uh, I mean, a real saxophone would be the wrong size for Zoot, so, of course, but, you know. Uh, the other thing <laughs> is that it looks like an alto sax, but it sounds like a tenor sax, which Again, it was obvious because uh, Phil Stiller was playing, presumably, an alto sax, although it also may have been a toy saxophone.
3: It I was clear. Muppet-sized, which I love. I love how <laughs> Muppety she is. She even gets her own Muppet-sized instrument to play. It's the same size as it's Sax.
1: I think actually a little smaller. <laughs> but it's real, whereas his is not. Right. <laughs> like she was actually playing. Right. Yes, I think it's frankly, I think it's a lady sax because the '70s and misogyny is what I oh think no. was happening. I mean, so I think it was that's smaller
3: and was pink and more expensive, is what you're saying. Yes,
1: exactly <laughs> what I'm saying.
2: The lady tax on the lady sax,
3: exactly. <laughs> yeah.
4: Ready, three, two, one, fire.
3: That sound means it is time once again for a shout out of a cannon.
4: Hey, did you hear the one about the kangaroo who walked into a store and this hippopotamus comes out and says to the kangaroo, hey, I wasn't
1: feeling <laughs> And the curtain closes on his face and we never <laughs> hear the punchline. I don't know. It just made me laugh. It's really and cute. And the sound of
3: the curtain closing is the same sound that somebody would if they were like clapping a hand over Fozzie's mouth to shut
1: him
0: yeah. up. <laughs> What's great about it is that it really plays into something that happens later in the episode when he ask for comedy advice from Phyllis Hiller because yeah.
1: clearly he needs it. <laughs> yeah. And Kermit right. like just happily dances on to introduce Phyllis, like heedless of the fact that he's just closed a curtain on Fozzie's face.
3: Yeah. This is totally normal. <laughs> this is how we do around here. And we've also got a uh, crazy Harry heading Gonzo off at the pass. He sets off an explosion before Gonzo can swing his mallet and hit the O, which is fun.
2: Am I the only one who consistently every week is amazed by the puppetry in the opening bit with Fozzie?
1: You're not. It's amazing.
3: It's like, Without fail, he does a fun pose that's unlike what he's done in previous poses. It's always great to watch.
2: Yeah, he's so alive. It's wonderful.
0: He's also just so good at like finding his light, finding his mark, finding his camera. Mm-hmm. There's a moment later in this episode where he and Scooter do like a take to the camera <laughs> that is just like I want it on a calendar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did oh, make man. a gif of it. <laughs>
0: You
3: oh thank can, you. Can I need that GIF.
1: Make it your Zoom background. I also like sometimes the curtain is not sometimes the curtain is a wipe effect to transition to another set. And the curtain is always real in those bits. Obviously it's real here because it actually hits him. And so I just I love the the full, you know, realness of, of those moments.
3: Do we need to mention Yay's if there have been no Yay's this week?
1: Here's the yay update. No yay. There's <laughs> no, no yay. Yay, yay free week. week. <laughs> yeah, not so much as a woo.
3: Yeah, just Phyllis Diller is here. Bang the gavel. It's done.
0: <laughs> I know this is the sort of thing that, like, he was absolutely not conscious of when he was doing it, and I'm sure if Jim Henson were alive and knowing that we were analyzing from week to week the way <laughs> that he introduced the guest, and like, is it some kind of a reflection on how he felt about the guest? He would be mortified. Yeah, I'm sure. You know,
1: it feels like that, that William Shatner sign-out live sketch where he goes to the Star Trek convention. Get a light, will you <laughs> I'm crying out loud. It's, it's just a TV show.
3: <laughs> so we've got a backstage plot and a running gag. Let's get the backstage plot over with. So Hilda is trying something here, and specifically what she's trying is to be more like Phyllis Diller, who had made a career out of making self-deprecating jokes about her appearance, although she had notably been public about getting plastic surgery, and this is something that Hilda is considering. But still, when she says she wants to be young and beautiful like Phyllis Diller, something is a little funky there. But let's listen.
4: Scooter, Mm -hmm. just between you and me, do you suppose Miss Diller has had her face raised?
0: Uh, oh, you mean lifted? Oh, sure, yeah, she jokes about it all the time.
4: Ah, that's wonderful. A person should stay young and dynamic as long as possible. Mm. Maybe I should consider that. Hmm? After all, I am 35. <laughs> hey, hey, is it possible Hilda's 35? Only around the waist.
3: And that's where they give that. I mean,. It is a terrible joke, but the little take that Scooter and Fuzzy do to the camera is wonderful. I would like the gif and not to think about that audio ever again. <laughs> so we've got Hilda on a quest to look young and beautiful, I think is the goal, or to get somebody to notice that she's changed her appearance because she tries on a wig and nobody notices. She tries out beauty tips from Phyllis Diller and nobody notices. And maybe if she had tried out one of the uh, David Bowie-esque wigs from Phyllis Diller's act... She'd have maybe had better luck with getting people to notice her.
0: I thought Hilda looked beautiful in the first wig that she tried out, and I think it's
1: absolutely absurd that
0: no one noticed or complimented her
1: on it.
3: I, th- it was a lovely wig.
1: Well, and she's also like she's upset that Kermit recognizes her. Like she still looks like Hilda, and she's also still wearing her same smock with the pincushion on her wrist, which <laughs> is not a criticism.
3: No, that's just she's also a professional. at work.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's, like, it's not a, whatever. She's, like, upset that she hasn't had this total transformation in the first scene. But, yeah, she looks she looks lovely in that wig and sunglasses. It's a good look.
3: Yeah. she's She's doing great. But she keeps trying because nobody's noticed that she's changed her appearance. And she says this means all-out war, which I think does not mean... What she thinks it means. This is not a cartoon where she's going to strap some dynamite to a piano. It just means that she's going to strap herself into a girdle, which Kermit does notice favorably until, alas. But
2: you're, you're so slim. How how do you do that?
4: Very tight <clears throat> foundation garments.
2: Oh, Hella! No. I just want you to know that I think it's wonderful that you want to look your best and. To-
4: Oh darn my girdle had a blowout.
2: <laughs> oh. oh that's okay, Hilda. We love you like you are anyhow.
4: Well the old gray mare is just what she used to be.
1: Oh well,
4: I just
3: wanna hug her.
1: Yeah. I wonder if Phyllis herself had been involved in this plot at all, what it might have been. Like I'm thinking about like Lena Horn hugging Ganto. And how sweet that was.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This very much like to me screamed, this was written by men.
1: Oh, for sure. But like, it almost starts strong with, with Scooter saying, oh yeah, she's had work done. She talks about it all the time, which is true. And then it goes to such a weird, bad place. Yeah. And I just wish that they had taken that idea and that truth about Phyllis Diller. And I don't know, involve Phyllis Diller <laughs> in some way and taking it literally anywhere else.
3: Yeah. If this had been a conversation between Phyllis Diller and Hilda talking about how, what a tough business it is and forget everybody and you should, do yeah. what makes you feel good. Like that would, that would have been nice.
1: Even if it had ended with the same punchline, like cause the exploding girdle gag is, is sort of funny, but like it, it needed to have Phyllis Diller involved to, to get it there. And yeah, I don't, I don't like it.
2: It just runs so counter to the ethos of Phyllis Diller. Like it, it almost would have made more sense in like the Candace Bergen episode, where where it was the the guest is a young, you know, famously beautiful, you know, quote unquote woman. Like the the fact that this happened in the Phyllis Diller episode, like, doubly negates it. I think.
0: Well, I think the idea of Phyllis Diller has made it acceptable for. Older woman to say that they want to get some work done and that there's nothing shameful about that could be a good launching pad for a Hilda story. It just goes in such a weird direction because you had a bunch of dudes not really understanding that that's what Phyllis Diller was saying, right? right? Like, right. yeah, yeah. <sighs>
3: I mean, at least we do get Kermit at the end, as as we've pointed out, saying we love Hilda the way she is, which we do. It's a bummer. Yeah. It is a funny sound effect on the girdle blowout. Yeah. But also
0: girdles are monstrous, and I can't believe they were ever a thing. I can't believe that we keep reinventing them under different names and different technologies.
3: On a funnier note, we've got uh, Fozzie working on his comedy with Phyllis Diller's help and falling through multiple trapdoors.
4: Excuse me, there seems to be a frog on the stage There is supposed to be a frog on the stage There's supposed to be a bear back in the dressing room Oh, well, you see, see, I think you just worked too hard, Frog of My Heart So I thought I would introduce the show this week Okay, fine, you introduce the show and I will pull the rope The rope? What rope? Uh, The rope for the trap door The trap (laughs) door! (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, every time. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Even just the audio is so great. <laughs> the trap Ah, <do> <sighs> uh, it's always funny. And then after Phyllis helps Fozzie with his comedy in the talk spot, she's there to help him out in the closing of the show.
4: Would you do me a favor? For you, for you, I would do anything. Oh, how nice! Would you stand over there on the other side of me? Uh, stand over here, right over there. Sure. Yes. Is this okay? That's just perfect. Hmm. Okay, well, friends, as
2: I say, it's to the end of the show now, so thank you for joining us and join us next time on The Muppet ah! yeah. Show. Ah! See you next time on The
1: Muppet Show.
3: Fozzie falls down it, too. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Trapdoors are always funny. No matter how many times people fall down the same trapdoor, I will laugh every time. As a capper on this running gag, we've even got it at the very end of the show.
4: I love
1: Oh, I it! <laughs> a little Swingy Todd moment in the box, <laughs> <They're> <laughs> sitting in chairs, and yet somehow.
3: Where does that trapdoor go? Yeah, no. We've got this little sketch that's kind of a change of pace for the Muppets. Um, Phyllis walks into a bar and sits down at Ralph's Piano and starts this very sweet little repartee with him about who is more miserable
1: this clip's a little long because we, we made a little montage because we couldn't pick a favorite line because it's great. We we have too many. So mm-hmm. here we go.
4: Why are you hounding me?
1: I'm a hound! What should I do? People
4: you cut the comedy. I'm depressed. Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, let me buy you a drink. I don't drink with strangers. I'm Phyllis. I'm wrong. <laughs> it's just that I'm such a loser. Oh, uh, I know what you mean. I am, too. I went to a taffy pool. The taffy won! <laughs> I swear if I bought a new hat, they'd cancel Easter. Oh, <laughs> well, you think that's bad? Listen, I went to Hollywood and fell in love with a movie star, Lassie. She left me
2: for Francis, the Talking Mule. <laughs>
4: I was born ugly. I have home movies of my folks leaving the hospital with sacks over their heads. Oh. <laughs> my father asked the doctor, is it a boy or a girl? He said, no. <laughs> I tell you, Ralph, I'm just a born loser. Oh, maybe. But you don't know what it's like to live life as a dog. Don't be so sure, fella. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh man! But listen to their rapport and their chemistry. I just I want them to make a dozen albums.
0: It does sound to me like the laugh track is on top of actual laughter from people in the room with. I them. had the same thought. Yeah,
3: it, I wondered if you guys were laughing. Like, no, that's in the.
1: that's no, on Muppet the track. show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. one because the, there's other Muppets like in the set, and I so I wonder if that's, that's the other performers or crew. And
0: I know? imagine that, especially for Phyllis, that that probably helped with the rhythm of the scene. Like it's deadly to do comedy without an audience. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Is Ralph working there? Is she distracting yeah, him from like, getting I think his it's job done?
1: I think it's a piano bar.
3: Yeah. And then he stops playing piano. <laughs> yeah. I
1: think this kind of is his job though, right? Like it's, she's a, she's a guest and they're, yeah. I mean, they're working the room together kind of.
3: Yeah. And then he stops and orders the two of them drinks from somebody that he calls Miss. Because he doesn't know the names of the people he, that he works with, well, or he's just sitting at somebody else's piano.
1: No, that's fair. It reminds, reminds me of the scene in the Muppet movie um, where he and Kermit meet.
3: Yeah. Just finding Ralph at a piano when you're depressed always makes sense. Right? I mean, if you're a Muppet or if you're Phyllis Diller.
1: <laughs> I also, I just really love this set. It's very spare. But it has all these like mismatched lamps hanging from the ceiling that just, uh, you just get like an amazing sense of place from it instantly. Yeah. You
0: wonder if it's based on a particular restaurant that
1: they went to or if it's just that they have a really good designer. Yeah. I don't know. I just, like, I loved it immediately. I want to go there.
3: Yeah. There was something about the way that they were using the camera angles. It feels like it was inspired by a scene in a movie, and I don't know which one. Hmm. But something was different about the way they filmed this.
0: I also thought it was just such a better use of a stand-up comedian doing stand-up than what we saw when Bruce Forsyth did his like two-hander act with Fozzie. It, it like this, it even though like you know the, the the scene isn't much of a scene, it's just sort of a an excuse to get them doing one-liners, it just it just gave it and just enough context to make it feel special and different and work. And and I noticed that uh, most of Phyllis's jokes, I think not only did she write them, but they're from her act. Like uh, a bunch of them I recognize from other Phyllis Diller recordings that I had listened to while we were prepping for this. So, uh, you know, and that's not unusual. Comedians, certainly, they don't tell a joke once and then never tell it again. But we often talk about where the line is between what the guest star contributes and what the Muppet show contributes. And I think here is pretty clear that the Muppet show writers wrote for Rolf and Phyllis wrote for Phyllis.
2: So I had a couple of very different observations about this. Uh, One was I, their chemistry was so palpable. I was like, are they going to make out like,
1: (laughs) she does give him a little kiss on the nose at the end.
2: Yeah. 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 But like, but there was something about it. I was just like, this feels like, like the like meet cute in a, Rom com, or something like I don't know, but but I was delighted by it. I wasn't weirded out by it. I don't know what that says about me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Do we need to mention that Ralph is just never gonna get over Lassie?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's weird.
3: (laughs) There's some I don't know, I don't know what their history was, but they something happened. You know, what
1: I actually found weird about that joke for real is I. To me, the idea of that joke is if I made that joke, or you made that joke, right? I went to Hollywood, I fell in love with a movie star, Lassie. Ha ha, I'm such a loser. But Ralph's a dog, so that isn't actually a bad thing, right? I mean, if she
3: leaves him for a mule, I guess that's a bad thing. Well, that's, yes.
1: That part tracks. I don't know, it felt like a weird, like the only off moment in that sketch, actually, to me, was the Lassie joke. Yeah, fair. Anywho.
3: We've got a Muppet News Flash that actually got a laugh out of me, even though there was a human guest in it. So kudos to the Muppet News Flash. Uh, Phyllis Diller appears as an aviatrix who built herself a pair of wings and flew from Mobile, Alabama to Dallas, Texas by getting on a plane. (laughs) So good for her. And the newsman is so put off and annoyed by this, and she's giving him this great, yeah, what are you going to do about it? I'm flapping my wings in your general direction face at him. (laughs) I was
2: amused. She's also doing the worst Texas accent of all time. It like, <laughs> reminded me of Eugene Levy's How High, Ridge, I Could Not Tell in uh, Wade
3: <laughs> Well, she flew from Alabama to Texas. Could it have been an Alabama accent?
2: Oh, well.
0: No.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> She's still making funny
1: faces. Oh, it's delightful. <laughs>
3: <Good>. <laughs> yeah. Are we ready for this at the dance? This
1: is a lot to unpack.
3: <laughs> All right. Everybody get your fan theories ready.
1: Oh, I'm so crazy about you. I
4: can't see straight. Oh, oh, oh I'm so goofy about you. I can't eat. Oh, oh, oh I'm so much in love with you. I, I can't even sleep. Oh, well, what should we do? Check
2: to a hospital, man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, finally, good to get out of that box.
4: Yeah, pay attention. I'm leading. <laughs> One, two, three, dip. Oh!
3: <laughs> yes, that was Statler and Waldorf dancing together. I would like to point out that Waldorf is in fact in the follow position, even though he claims to be leading. In case you are wondering,
1: I was in fact. You're welcome. So apart. <laughs> From the fact that they're dancing as a couple. <laughs> Let's just leave that aside for a second. If we can. It is We can come back to it. Okay. Is the implication that they live in the box, or they're trapped in the box?
3: Or that this is their personal hell?
1: <laughs> yeah, like, it's good to get out of that box. Don't they leave the box every night after the show is over and come back to it?
3: Waldorf does go home to Astoria, presumably.
1: Presumably.
0: Uh well, th- if she actually exists and is not just
1: Statler in a wig. Okay. So they go home together. <laughs> they go to the restroom, they go to the concession stand. I mean, I'm just saying, it was a weird thing to say.
2: Is this like a like a mystery science theater 3000 thing where like they're part of some sort of crackpot in- engineered social experiment where the entire like muppet forced? show Yeah. (laughs) It's designed
1: to torture them. (laughs) Explain a lot, actually.
2: Yeah, it sounds right.
3: I'll buy it.
0: What's interesting is that there are plenty of other Muppets who are paired together that we have never seen dance together, right? Like Kermit and Fozzie are very much a duo. We've never seen them dance together. Bunsen and Beaker. In I mean, obviously, Beaker doesn't exist yet at this point, but in all of the years of The Muppet Show, do we ever see Bunsen and Beaker dance together at At The Dance? Like, this feels like, notable. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just just a happenstance thing.
3: I mean, it's played for comedy. Like, there are two men dancing together and the laugh track laughs.
0: But I didn't think the laugh track was laughing at the, like, very idea of two men dancing together. I think Well, who's, who's to say what it was in the 70s? Today, when you watch it, it feels like the Laugh Track is laughing in part because they are two people whose role is to be complaining from the audience who are now suddenly part of the show, who are doing something that we don't expect them to do.
3: I don't know.
1: No, I agree. That's how I read it, too.
3: That makes sense. Yeah, you wouldn't expect to see them on the stage. You're right. I think that that is meant to be funnier to the viewers than... Ha ha! Two men dancing.
2: Have you all noticed that George and Mildred's dancing has gotten wilder and looser with every single one of these?
0: I love Her it. Her arms so were much. so long this week.
3: <laughs> she's been stretching them. Maybe
0: <laughs> it's like she—it's like middle school dance, right, where she's touching him but as far away as possible. <laughs> oh, I do not miss those days.
3: Wide swings. <laughs> But they look so thrilled about it. It's not an awkward musical dance. The
0: Holy Ghost and the whole Holy Family.
3: (laughs) But they're like sweeping each other around the ballroom. They're both like leaning back in ecstasy. (laughs) They're having a great time dancing. I'm into it.
0: I mean, I think in general, Frank Oz seems to be a little bit looser in this episode than perhaps we've ever seen him. And that may be part of that as well. Like if you think about Piggy and veterinarian's hospital. Like we're seeing Frank just sort of let loose in a way
1: with his physicality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with- Fuzzy in the talk spot too. Mm-hmm. That's some great moments.
3: Yeah. Between that and George and Mildred and <laughs> it is fun to see Piggy having a good time in vet's hospital. It doesn't quite make sense. So yeah, maybe Frank just got some gin and tonics before this. We're up to the talk spot. Um, Kermit doesn't get to flirt with a guest star this week. Sorry, Kermit, because uh, we have a comedian and Fozzie would like to ask her for some tips, which turns out to be a bit of a struggle. <laughs> it doesn't take notes well.
4: Hey, 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 Kermit said I could chat with you because, well, we're both comedians, you know, and frankly, I, I think you are the funniest person alive. Yeah. Thank you. I was wondering if you could give me a few tips on comedy, hmm? Why, that's so nice of you, Fozzie. Of course I'll give you a few tips. I can't do that joke. Why? I don't have a husband. <laughs> what wife? No, no wife. Well, make one up. They don't care. What? I, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't lie to the audience. I, they they, they love me. I love them. I couldn't lie to the audience. Well, you just did. You told him you're a comedian.
3: <laughs> as much as we were just saying that Frank is so loose here and having such a great time, which he is, <laughs> there is also something very latter day Frank Oz about, I respect my audience too much to lie to them.
1: <laughs> and it's so, her teasing of him is so good natured. <laughs> right. Like there's nothing, there's just nothing mean spirited about it. It's, and he know like Fozzie, the character knows that.
3: Yeah. It's all in good like fun. It,
1: like it's not Sattler and Waldorf. It's, it's fun and it's light. I don't know. I love it.
3: And it's, it's so much fun to watch Fozzie and it's so much fun to watch Phyllis Diller separately and together. And it, uh, it's so much fun to watch her work the camera because she, she knows exactly where to look and how to time it and how to, <laughs> when she sets up a joke for Fozzie to deliver, she looks straight at us and bats her eyelashes while Fozzie delivers the joke and she gives this disdainful look when he can't do it well. It's just, it's a thing of beauty. And she's my favorite Muppet of the week. She's not a Muppet, but she's so (laughs) Muppety and I'm into it.
0: Do you think that Jim allowed Kermit not to flirt with her in the talk spot because he got to flirt with her as Rolf in that other sketch.
3: (laughs) So Mm. we've checked the box of flirting. Yes, sir. I mean, you wouldn't be able to top the chemistry that she had with Rolf.
2: It was real. Yeah. Is it weird that I'm more weirded out by Rolf and Lassie? than I am by the sexual tension between Rolf and Phyllis Diller.
3: Lassie can't consent.
2: Ah, there it is.
0: <laughs> oh wait a, minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think it's been very, very clearly established that that Rolf and Lassie speak the same language. <laughs> I think that's established when Rolf actually meets Lassie on the Jimmy Dean show. I think that's established in the Muppet Takes Manhattan when Rolf speaks with the dogs that are in his care.
3: Yeah. And Rolf in Muppet Family Christmas, he communicates with Sprocket. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. And as in Muppet Family Christmas, don't you hate it when you can't speak the language? So, it is entirely possible that without my knowledge, Lassie and Rolf have had a conversation. <laughs> or many conversations, or just one, where she <laughs> told him to buzz off and he never got over it. Meanwhile, at Muppet Labs, uh, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew is demonstrating his exploding hat, which, yes, that's a neat piece of work. And then he puts on what appeared to be a pair of protective headphones. And I, being an anxious audio professional, assumed that whatever he was putting on his ears were there to protect his hearing and then he said, "These are his exploding earmuffs." And then one after the other, they explode right into his ears. <gasps> no, I couldn't handle it. I know he doesn't have any ears, but I still can't handle it. That's what's up at Muppet Labs.
0: I it's- just want to say that Bunsen looks quite fine in his hat and vest and necktie. An exploding necktie. Which he does. All that yeah, explode. look yeah. very
3: dapper. <laughs> it's true. Kudos to him. <laughs> We've got a blackout spot, and it is. Probably my favorite line of the week because I am a predictably easy target.
4: What you got there? It's my new pocket camera. It takes great pictures. See there? Oh, what are these pictures of? Pockets.
3: Oh. <laughs> 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 yep, says what the product does. <laughs> All right, so we've got a vet's hospital. Dr. Bob is about to operate on a piece of bread. But
2: first. <laughs> yes, yes. I was just tending to an emergency. A musician at the symphony just fell through his harp. Oh,
4: where is he now? In rooms 9, 10, 11, and 12.
1: <laughs> very Another, upsetting.
3: I thought it was very funny.
1: No, it's funny, but it's very upsetting if you stop and think about it.
3: I mean, yeah, it does sound like a painful way to go. It has been worth the wait uh, for Nurse Piggy to be performed by Frank Oz because uh, she is hamming it up. She's flailing her arms and fainting and just falling onto Dr. Bob every time he tells a bad joke. It's delightful. Also, she's wearing a mask here, which I usually make it through The Muppet Show without having any kind of mask panic, but she's the only one wearing a mask and it's just over her nose and I don't know how to feel.
1: I mean, I think it's technically over her nose and mouth, but she's a pig, so it doesn't quite work. Right? Not exactly sealing happening. No, that's true.
2: What is she doing at the very beginning of the sketch?
1: I, so they've established this running gag where every vet's hospital begins with her fucking around with a piece of medical equipment. Yeah, but and I,
3: mean, I don't know what it is it, this time yeah, or ever last week. since
1: the ever since it was the 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 gas, I've never been sure what it. Was yeah, because this definitely
2: looked like a spoon, and then she like sort of like scratched at her nose, and I was just like, "Is Piggy doing coke in the (laughs) operating room?" Oh, I bet it was a facelift
1: joke.
0: Is it? Yeah, it was definitely a facelift joke, and I think that the tool is like the kind of thing where if they need to need you to like keep your mouth open, they like use it to like prop up the top of your mouth.
1: She was like pushing up her snout. Uh. Yeah, it was
2: the the sort of like scratch and sniff element that had me, flashing back to Sandy Duncan.
1: Yeah, and last week she was last week she was doing the muzzle thing, but like I don't I don't know what that object actually was.
3: Yeah, I remember asking myself, is that a dog muzzle? I don't know. I'm not even going to pretend to know. So yeah, didn't talk about it.
1: Well, it
0: seems that we have now covered everything and then some, and uncovered some <laughs> things, indeed
2: bravo oh bravo wonderful just wonderful how
0: would you know you're not even facing the stage (laughs) why did you have to tell me i was having such a good time Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Vincent Price episode featuring our guests, Josh and Liz Krebs, hosts of the Bloody Date Night podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you don't like what we're doing, get the hell out of here. Why are you still listening? Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Beck. What is the name of the celebrity foot wiki? I feel like that might come up in this episode. Is okay. it just
1: wiki I, uh, feet? No, what? I had the same thought. Um,
4: <laughs> nope. this it's just is wiki feet,
1: but let me look it up. Um, <laughs> yeah, yep. That's it. That's it. Great. You got There's it. There's wiki okay, feet great.
0: and then wiki feet men.
3: <laughs> wow. Wait, is the other separate. one all non-men?
0: <laughs> yes. I guess.
3: Wiki feet. You've got those wiki feet.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. No. <laughs> you started it. <laughs> Well, at least we have our bonus content
2: (laughs) right at the beginning.